A warm good evening, everyone. Um, I am Siddharth from Team Azad Awas, and you are listening to Vichar, the official podcast of Azad Awas. Azad Awas is an initiative by the Center for New Economic Studies of the uh, OP Jindal Global University, and we aim to amplify the voices of the marginalized. We are a monthly issue. and for this issue for the month of february we are focusing on tribal rights and tribal history this vichar is uh, predominantly focusing on the origins of tribal history and to discuss this same subject uh, on behalf of team azad awas and the center for new economic studies i'm honored to welcome professor sagar tiwari Professor Sagar Tiwari is an associate professor of history in the Jindal School of Liberal Arts and Humanities of the OP Jindal Global University. He received his MPhil and PhD both from the Center for Historical Studies from the Jawaharlal Nehru University from in the years 2009 and 2015 respectively. His research interests include tribal studies, Adivasi studies, history of anthropology, environmental history, and the relationship between princely states and the british india based on these topics and research interests he has written numerous articles and research papers occasional research papers and those these have been published in prestigious journals such as the india quarterly a journal of international affairs he has also been a junior research fellow in the indian council for historical research new delhi and visiting associate fellow of the center for the study of developing societies so I extend my warm welcome to you, and I am honored to host you in this edition of Vichar. Thank you so much for gracing us. So, sir, uh, without further ado, it is an absolute privilege. Thank you. Uh, Thank it you. is. Uh... Okay. Um, so, without any further ado, uh, let us uh, go into the interview. um just for a uh, reference for all the listeners a question has already be being shared to professor tiwari and we will be uh, asking questions from that apart from uh, any follow ups that i personally may ask throughout the interview so my first question to you sir is um while colonial discourses in their quest for legitimacy to rule almost always portrayed indian civilization as backward static and hierarchical and especially the tribes were seen as primitive the other in some sense of the indian civilizational space do you think this bias is still present in the way tribal history is read and as students what are the sources we would refer to to get an unbiased picture of the indian tribal history today um thank you siddharth uh, for a question uh, i would Uh, uh i of all the questions that you have submitted this is the one i have a slight objection to because as a historian uh i will uh, not uh, go to the extent of saying that uh, uh you know in a very broad brushed manner the entirety of indian civilization was depicted or represented as uh, backward static and hierarchical there is a certain strong tendency to do that in a certain kind of historiography but if you look at the early orientalists uh, who include names like william jones and uh, uh, many others who uh, actually made very sincere attempts to 
study the scriptures of uh, uh, the Brahmins and the Malvis. Most of them were in Arabic, Persian, Sanskrit. Uh, the the um, uh, especially vis-a-vis -vis Sanskrit, they raised it to the pedestal of Latin and Greek, and and they said. Uh, uh, and this is a very powerful probe that these languages are interlinked and it led to uh, you know uh, a new field of phil comparative philology whereby uh, uh, large time scale histories of migration were uh, then conducted so uh, the the question needs slight reformulation um, but by and large the depiction of the tribe as the other of the indian civilization space is absolutely true and there are uh, uh, reasons uh, why uh, um, this has been the case in uh, the long stretch of Indian history. Uh, very simplistically saying, uh, when you use the word civilization, civilization has a connotation of um, being based in river valleys because uh, uh, of, uh, you know, alluvial fertile alluvial plain uh, the uh, the the ability to raise multiple crops two or three in a year which uh, would then give any incipient state formation uh, chance to develop and de you know the the em empires emerged out of uh, and almost all empires emerged out of land revenue proceeds of the peasantry and cultivating classes so uh, uh, this, when you use the word civilization, it has a river valley connotation. While when you use the word tribe, um, it, uh, and to go very far back, uh, all groups were once tribal groups. Because when you use the word tribe, uh, we basically mean a band, a band occupying a certain territory. Okay. Uh, and, and if you, uh, uh, go to the hunter-gatherer stage, or uh, you know, phases afterwards. Uh, the uh, people mostly used to roam around in bands and um, gathered food, and that's how uh, they eked out their subsistence. So, uh, uh, to uh, it will not be far off the mark to even say that the in Indo-Aryan speakers, who many called Aryan. Uh, uh, many, many of them use uh, Aryan as a racial category, and uh, there's this entire idea of Aryan invasion, who, which came in the sub Indian subcontinent and pushed out indigenous groups uh, into the hills and forests. Even Aryans, in a certain way, were uh, uh, tribes who were uh, nomadic, and, and they roamed around um, in search of better land, better pastures, etc. So, um, uh, civilization has a river valley connotation, when, but when you use the word tribe, it has a very distinct connotation of a frontier, uh, a, a space. They, they traditionally would be occupying spaces which uh, uh, could be called spaces of wilderness or frontier or, uh, uh, you know, away from the river valleys. They traditionally, mm, uh, for, for large periods of Indian history, did not occupy uh, the fertile alluvial plains. And in that sense, these groups uh, uh, were on the, kept on the margins of uh, civilizations, where cities sprang up, trade was uh, 
robustly conducted and uh, monetized economy uh, came into being writing uh, originated so all these features of advanced civilization are features of uh, river valleys but when we look at spaces like frontiers forests wilderness uh, uh, which were sparsely populated and uh, did not have many revenue bearing subjects uh, the state the level of the state uh, percolation was low and uh, it was difficult for the centralized state policy polities to control these spaces and hence uh, a very a loose kind of control was maintained over them uh, uh, so uh, one of the uh, recurring tropes of colonial historiography however has been the juxtaposition of um, village vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the forest and and uh, i i uh, want to highlight uh, the earlier terms which were used for these words were gram and aranya so gram was the uh, the british uh, translated this word gram into a village and many people still think that gram is a village but gram is actually uh, a band a group of people so if you look at uh, the earliest uh, one of i mean the, the second the phase of the second urbanism uh, in 6th century bc they are called janapadas the rise of 16 mahajanapadas uh, if you break up this word uh, is jan which is people and pad pad is feet so wherever the feet of the people uh, i mean wherever a people occupied a certain territory it became a janpad and uh, uh, you know uh, other groups allied and it became a mahajanpada and those are uh, state formation exercises which uh, kept have kept happening in indian history but in what in in one way uh, colonialism and i'm here jumping uh, because we have limited time i'm jumping slightly ahead to another question of yours which uh, Um, uh, which where you have said, do you think if India was not colonized, the tribes would have been recognized different, uh, differently today? It's in the second, the last part of the second question. Now um, I'm jumping gun here because uh, uh, I think it co correlates to my answer, uh, which I've just. Uh, uh, expressed uh, in in response to your first question if uh, you've used the word if uh, and this is not a not a historian's territory i mean we we cannot uh, uh, say if colonialism wouldn't have happened then uh, what would have happened i mean it's it's beyond us to uh, make sense of such a large uh, speculative question but one uh, uh, way in which i can definitely uh, try and intervene intervene in this and I, i do have a response to this question is that colonialism arrested the development of many tribal polities which were developing their own state forms so if you look at uh, central india you have many cases uh, of gold rajas who were in fact uh, creating kingships or quasi kingships which were locally dominant uh, state forms and structures uh, 
but by the uh, because the colonialism unleashed forces uh, like law courts police uh, and and of course with super, super much superior coercive power uh, backed by their military that development of tribal state uh, forms was arrested and that has had immense repercussions on the fate of uh, uh, tribal communities because uh, had they developed along autonomous independent lines uh, it would have been a much different landscape uh, perhaps they won't have been so um, easily relegated to the margins uh, in which they most of them uh, find themselves in central india eastern india at least the tribes of northeast is a different matter because uh, they occupy a space which is closer to international borders so despite being much fewer in numbers compared to central and eastern indian tribes the northeastern tribes are in a much better position because uh, their uh, the, the the negotiation that ca they can uh, undertake vis-a-vis -vis the centralized indian state is much more uh, uh, robust and can uh, i mean ha has led to uh, a lot of uh, subsidies being given to them a lot of autonomy being given to them which is not the case with central and eastern india because they constitute what i would uh, argue an internal frontier of uh, the indian nation state today yeah okay. so that is my response yeah thank you thank you so much sir thank you for that critical insight uh, into uh, tribal communities. Um, I, I do uh, understand that you also in some way answered the second question, but uh, to give a context to the listeners uh, who will be listening to this podcast, uh, the second question was in one of your working papers, you state that at the cusp of Indian independence, most tribal regions of the subcontinent had witnessed little electoral or associational politics especially in the erstwhile princely states, the established tradition of ruling authority was that of the king and the court elite. In many cases, the ruling family made a successful transition as elected representatives of the people. Did the colonial power perceive the Indian tribes any different from the Indian elites? And do you think if India was not colonized, the tribes would have been recognized differently today? While uh, I understand that- No, no I am not- uh... You've, I've only given the answer to the last part of your question. Yes. So yes, you are very well uh, uh, in your, I mean, uh, I, I do have a response to uh, the earlier part, which is yeah. did the colonial part perceive the tribes in any different uh, yes. way from other Indian elites? Yes. Uh, and I would uh, say that, yes, in, in that sense, uh, uh, colonial um, state backed by a certain understanding of Indian society, which emerged out of a particular kind of anthropological exercise, whereby uh, missionaries, uh, scholar administrators, military personnel, uh, when they came into contact with people inhabiting these frontier uh, forested, uh, fr you know, uh, wilderness spaces, uh, they realized that uh, India is not all about collection of revenue from land. It is not only peasant, it is not only villages. Uh, uh, and, and in fact, uh, um, many historians argue uh, 
that up till the 18th century the number of people who were living a nomadic life a pastoral primarily a nomadic pastoral life was far higher than people who were settled in uh, um, the civilized plains as it were so uh, these kind of uh, interactions between uh, white europeans uh, primarily from england but there are other uh, um, nationalities also who came into contact with these people portuguese dutch um, uh, and many others who uh, uh, had amateurish uh, i mean who gave amateur expressions to their uh, experiences with these tribes but slowly it cohered into uh, a framework whereby uh, uh, the there there emerged these binaries this binary between caste and tribe so uh, the caste society was seen as hierarchical uh, patriarchal uh river valley based uh, uh and and much more um uh, you know conservative traditional vis-a-vis -vis the tribes where women enjoyed far greater liberty it was more egalitarian uh, uh, but at the same time uh, this other this the, the tribe is also uh, represented as a noble element in indian population because uh these westerners were uh, uh i mean in their effort to legitimize their own rule they took on a mantle of uh, a kind of uh, protection that they are giving to these tribes vis-a-vis -vis, uh, caste hindus who uh, primarily would exploit them in ways uh, that were detrimental to uh, autonomy and interest of the tribes so there is this of course a very strong distinction between caste society and tribal society but it emerged later in the colonial period uh, in fact if you look at uh, 18th century early 19th century records uh, and many of them are published also and in the public domain uh, even brahmins at places have been referred to as tribes uh, now what does it mean um, in early 19th century when someone like john marshall uh, represents brahmins as a tribe and not a caste is something i am not uh, um, i have not figured out myself because my specialization is mainly in the 20th century um, but um, this uh, coherence of missionary perspective uh, anthropological perspective uh, administrative perspective it crystallizes towards the end of 19th century uh, also in um, uh, response or or in um, there's a there's a uh, imperative emanating within the colonial bureaucracy whereby uh, certain frameworks are supposed to be uh, put on the indian population which makes them legible for uh exercises of administrative uh, convenience so census for instance becomes a very important tool through which uh tribe and uh caste are separately enumerated uh, and it reaches its climax in 1931 census but before that 
there's always this very uh, interesting debate in the census documents about when does a tribe cease to be a tribe and become part of the caste because this tribe and caste is also seen as a continuum where uh, as and when um, tribals uh, or tribal elements are detribalized i mean when when uh, say uh, they hop on uh, the hindu evolutionary model and uh, start claiming a certain caste status in the local hierarchy jati hierarchy uh, then um, you also have uh, groups who are claiming that they are not tribes that they are castes and the state should recognize themselves as castes uh, so mahatos are an important example in odisha and jharkhand region so uh, it's it's a very complex dynamic um, of course and of course we are talking of hundreds of communities and millions of people so uh, uh, but but yeah there is this fundamental caste tribe distinction but the british were never able to resolve it and uh, they uh, saw it as a continuum rather than um, as a very distinct other of indian civilization and space thank you so <clears throat> thank you so much for that uh, response now from the colonial era we come to uh, this point a crucial point in indian history where the actual debates surrounding the tribal societies and communities in india began and uh, this question is in reference uh, to acha uh, there's sidat uh, uh, there's one point which i forgot to mention sure, and sure. this is in response to uh, one one question which is part of your uh, first uh, question that what are the sources yeah. we should refer to to get an unbiased picture of indian tribalism sure sure yeah. now on this question i don't think it's it's more a question of sources rather than um, perspective so uh, i would say that uh, in a eurocentric world for instance when you look at the uh, map of the world in front of you as it appears europe is in the center and uh, the other world regions are uh, organized around it uh, uh, one way to undo or try and shake uh, the marginality uh, of tribes in indian historiographical narratives would be to change this perspective and instead of writing everything from the perspective of the river valley uh, we start and writing it from the perspective of the frontier the spaces of wilderness the spaces of nomadic uh, herders and pastoralists uh, and forest inhabitants so um, uh, sources uh, are plenty and uh, uh, one uh, is the question of uh, perspective which i have just outlined and the other is a question of the method so method in method i would say um, there is a crying need to do more archaeological excavations so in in large parts of central india eastern india there still lie uh, uh, dilapidated fortresses and uh, complexes which have not been um, excavated and uh, we do not have ample documentation which has been produced on them uh, but they are clearly uh, remnants of earlier tribal polities 
and uh, if we can uh, devote more energy to archaeological excavation i think uh, a gap a crucial gap in sources can be filled because uh, tribal polities by and large are oral cultures they have left very few written records and unless you have written records uh, historical reconstruction is difficult uh, but uh, there are ways in which existing records can be read against grain to get the perspective of the tribe and the uh, frontier uh, people but uh, to do that we also need many other parallel uh, developments in archaeology i would say museums can be a, a, another space which need to be developed because uh, unless uh, uh, we go i mean unless children are sensitized to these elements in our indigenous uh demographic setup uh how will future scholarship um, will emerge uh, um, about them so archaeology museums and memorialization of their past is uh, necessary it's less question of sources but more a question of methods the right methods okay yeah. thank you thank you so much uh, professor for that response uh now coming to my third question um so this is in reference to one of your papers that occasional research paper that was published by the nehru memorial museum and library so you state that so this, this uh, paper was essentially about how tribal history per se has a place uh, in indian history earlier than what people usually think in the indian sociological scene like uh, people assume that it really began after gs gurie came into the indian sociological scene but you argue against it saying that it started way back when uh, indian administrative officers in the british era like j h hutton started uh, you know uh, research in the uh, anthropological mm -hmm. spectrum and then you also talk about how uh, people like a v thakkar and b r ambedkar uh contributed a lot uh through their views to the discussion of how we should view tribal people and tribal communities as now you mentioned that these have influenced the way uh the constitutional rights and uh you know uh and duties have been enshrined for them especially um with the way the 5th and the 6th schedule of the indian constitution is framed but my question is how did these debates influence the way tribal history is seen perceived and thought today okay um, it's a large question um, and um, my first response uh, is that tribal history is taught in very few places uh, it is still uh, like tribal history in general even in terms of teaching and research it doesn't occupy the lion's share of uh, or even a you know moderate share of historiographical research uh, historical research is still mainly conducted uh, on other groups communities and issues uh, and we need more workers uh, who can uh, throw some uh, different light on uh, tribal history um, another reason is uh, uh, that uh, even people who enter the field of tribal history uh, after making some uh, reputation for themselves they leave the field they don't stay in the field long enough and 
This is not my point, but many others have felt the same. Uh, and uh, unless you have consistency in uh, you know a body of work which emerges and develops, and you know um, subsequent scholars build upon it, it is tough to um, institutionalize it in a manner that uh, it becomes part of the discourse. Uh, so one of the uh, things I felt while conducting my own PhD research is that uh, uh, this Ghudi Elvin debate was a very easy route to enter uh, tribal history domain. So nobody uh, tried to contextualize for some reason uh, what led to this debate. And um, my own research is an attempt to uh, trace an earlier history of, as you said, people like J.S. Sutton and others who um, had started this discourse. And in that others, uh, uh, other figures like Thakkar and uh, Guri and Elvin later jumped in. Um, but in itself, um, the, uh, the tribal history as seen and perceived today in India is very largely seen and perceived in terms of the Ghuri Elvin debate, uh, that there were these two camps and one of them, uh, the Ghuri uh, uh, school said that we should, um, we should, uh, you know, mainstream these uh, uh, sections of Indian society who, who actually, he actually calls backward Hindus. So uh, there's this uh, discourse of backwardness, which again predates uh, Ghurye, in which he inserts tribes as an element of Hindu civilization uh, and Hindu uh, demographic groups. Now, that's a complex history, which hopefully um, um, will be unraveled in, in some time. Uh, my own uh, forthcoming book uh, deals with this uh, history uh, in, in greater detail. But um, uh, this binary of isolation versus assimilation or Ghuri and Elvin, sorry, Elvin and Ghuri respectively, uh, is very strong. It is one of the hardest tropes to uh, challenge and, you know, uns unshake and unsettle. Uh, and, and my own uh, PhD is an attempt to uh, unsettle this discourse because, uh, frankly, uh, the context of the debate was not uh, just the future of the tribe as backward Hindus or not. It was something else. It was the debate on scheduling and, as you rightly said, the fifth and sixth schedules uh, took on these ideas from an earlier colonial discourse. Uh, and um, despite... Uh, nationalist opposition to these ideas of exclusion. Uh, finally, they accepted it and, and uh, they accepted it in the face of immense political mobilization, both by uh, communist led insurrections in uh, spaces like, like uh, Telangana, Tebhaga, Worldly in Bombay presidency, and also uh, very strong uh, uh, rights advocacy movement in uh, Chotanagpur Plateau um, in the form of the Jharkhand agitation uh, under the leadership of Jepal Singh Munda. So this history is again uh, 
less understood and less written about but uh, my own uh, work is an attempt to uh, flash out these narratives historically using archives and i'm sure others are also uh, engaged in a similar task and in years to come i think the picture will be much more uh, nuanced and complicated Thank you, sir. Thank you so much for that response. Um, so now, uh, moving on to our next question. Uh, this is so. Despite the fact that all these vibrant debates happening between different scholars uh, about uh, tribal communities, towards the end of these discussions, it ultimately boiled down to a binary concept—a concept of either including them or excluding them. Uh, that's the debate through which. Um, most of the things uh, that has been specified and most of the uh, schedules and most of the constitutional rights have been framed right um, so my question right now is do you think there is a fundamental error in viewing these tribes and tribal people through this light has there been any criticism for the same from any other scholars uh, who have been engaged in this debate and if yes what are they and how to address them sensibly um again uh, like all your other questions this is a large question and uh, uh, i am i must first congratulate you and your team because they did go through articles to frame these questions and um, i had to also you know think over it for some time thank you uh, thank you so much it's sir. good that your generation uh, is at it and uh, uh, sees these issues seriously Uh, now my response to your question is that um, of course there is a fundamental error in viewing tribes and tribal people in this light because uh, as verier elvin uh, would say uh, who are we to uplift them you know this idea of uplifting is again uh, a very teleological idea that they are at a lower pedestal and we have to somehow raise their civilizational status and bring them at par with other communities and and other groups of uh, indian people um uh, many tribal rights activists would uh, say on the contrary that uh, we don't need upliftment what we need is autonomy and give us autonomy we like we are autonomous people we don't want uh, too much of uh, intervention by state or capital or a com combination of state and capital uh, but rather uh, uh, give us the rights which are enshrined in the constitution give us uh, the pesa act in its in all its robustness uh, and give us all the uh, powers which are enlisted in the fifth schedule fifth schedule uh, by the way um, is called a constitution within a constitution so it gives such a wide array of powers to local gram sabhas that um, uh, it it's uh, it's a you know um, it, it's very much uh, if allowed to function um, with all vigor it is something which can uh, protect and keep most tribal citizens very happy in their Uh, respective domains but the trouble has been that these uh, 
these these laws have remained paper tigers they have never been implemented uh, in the letter or spirit and uh, this has generated widespread resentment um, which has led to all kinds of manifestations including uh, left wing extremism in in large parts of the country so uh, uh, the uh, there has been criticism um, of this model of inclusion exclusion uh, upliftment and so on and so forth but uh, this entire discourse actually has deep colonial roots and i would argue i would go to the extent of saying that uh, um, the independent indian nation state uh, has not uh, fulfilled the promises that it made to its tribal citizens when the constitution making uh, was on and uh, when uh, a pact was made that yes uh, tribes will be indian citizen tribal people will be indians uh, uh, and and will have all the rights and privileges but when it comes to uh, uh, the nuts and bolts the everydayness of uh, life in independent india um, it seems like an extension of the uh, colonization uh, so mn butch i i once spoke to this uh, uh, very uh, esteemed renowned civil servant he served as the chief secretary of uh, madhya pradesh government for a long time uh, and he told me that uh, sagar the basic problem of tribal development which state promises and every year apparently spends thousands of crores of rupees all over the country but it doesn't bear much food is that um, a of course we all know there's this problem of leakages and so on but another problem that he um, uh, highlighted and uh, i think there's a point there that the per capita cost of um, say educating every child in a plain area vis-a-vis -vis in a forested area or the per capita cost of providing health services in a uh, hilly area vis-a-vis -vis a plain area uh, the per capita cost is very high so the people who decide where the money should be spent they uh, conveniently forget uh, or or set aside the tribal uh, interests because they are they they constitute very little of their voter voter base okay so uh, um, if if uh, ensuring electricity will mean say 100 crores in a certain forested district with uh, a population of 30000 uh, people and two seats in the assembly uh it will be far uh, uh, less remunerative than 100 crores in uh, a district which is heavily populated and has 15 assembly constituencies so uh, the this logic has worked in sinister ways all across india less so in the northeast because 
you know it's a frontier international uh, frontier space closer to international uh, boundary and hence the state subsidizes it much more but in large parts of central in, and eastern india and other states um, the the financial outlay is never made uh, which is necessary to bring these benefits of uh, uh, you know health education electricity etc etc and uh, what happens is primarily leakages and uh, and that uh, uh, in the long run uh, detrimentally affects uh, not only the morale of the tribal people but also their anchoring to their local language customs culture autonomy it makes them uh, uh, less sure of handling the challenges of life you know they are not very confident citizens of independent india uh, they they have not got a square deal and and it is uh, it remains to be fulfilled the the uh, dr bd sharma used to say it's a unbroken chain of broken promises thank you so there are lots of broken promises and it's an it's it's a chain which is only broken there's no promise which has been fulfilled uh, and and that metaphor i think aptly sums up the tribal predicament in independent india sure so sure so thank you so much for this response and especially as uh, especially for that last quote that kind of summarizes the entire argument um so um i think the fifth and sixth questions you almost partially answered uh, because uh, i think the fourth question itself you uh, hinted towards uh, left wing extremism arising out of the fact that there were a lot mm-hmm. of promises that were not fulfilled by the state and the state weren't fulfilling their duties to give the dues what the tribes uh, really uh, wanted so um in just for the context of the viewers i'll uh, also uh, repeat the uh, uh, mention these questions so um so when we are talking and reading about the adivasis and the tribal communities the maoists or the left wing extremist movements also play a role because of the influence they wield over the forests of many areas such as in play uh, states like chatisgarh in fact a paper by ramachandra guha talk uh, talks about how the village naxalbari from which the name naxals originate lies in a predominantly adivasi area in west bengal they have been conducting activities where the adivasis have been threatened and detailing that there's another paper by nandini sundar uh, who, and she talks of a specific incident where adivasis were coerced into joining their movement and if not present for the first time not for the second time their village will be burned right and so we partially looked at how um, the maoists or the left wing extremist movement originated in the area where the adivasis lived in the first place um, we looked into that and we also looked at, and we also partially looked into the sixth question which spoke about um, how we would be I, I, i'm sorry uh, but what would be the immediate and the necessary socio legal and policy changes that could be brought up to address the needs of the marginalized adivasi communities and how to actualize them so uh, but what i would need more uh, detailed answers for is this part of the question which was how does their presence and influence change or affect the way adivasi history is read and perceived today 
Um, that is uh, a task which remains to be done. And I think it can only be done by ethnographic research. Uh, uh, there have been attempts at doing so. And uh, uh, the uh, some of the insights are with us. But uh, we are also, mind you, operating in a scenario where uh, uh, the nexus between state and capital is increasingly getting more and more uh, vociferous. And uh, my sense is that in the near or midterm future, I'm talking of uh, the next five to 10 years at least, this will have serious repercussions on uh, the tribal regions in large parts of Central and Eastern India. Uh, one of the reasons why uh, I, I fear such a uh, uh, such a major push is underway and will become more and more apparent is that uh, these uh, regions uh, house uh, most of the minerals and forest wealth of the country, and uh, capital in uh, uh, alliance with state is uh, going to and is actively seeking to extract this uh, um, in, in a manner which is which I fear has been and will be uh, primitive accumulation. Uh, it will uh, be devoid of any uh, moral contingency or uh, imperatives and um, uh, the Tries will continue to be, uh, bear the brunt of uh, this uh, struggle between the Maoists and the state. I think uh, their situation is particularly precarious because uh, if they support one side, the other uh, brandishes them and, and brands them as traitor and anti-national or whatever. So uh, it's, it's a tough uh, call for them. Uh, but I must say uh, one thing that uh, left, the influence of left in uh, tribal areas of India doesn't uh, start and end with Maoism. Maoism is a phenomena which, is, uh, which, which has started occurring only in the late 90s and early 2000s when uh, People's War Group and other... Uh, mm, I mean, uh, Maoist Communist Center, for instance, they, they merged and formed the CPI Maoist in 2004-05. Uh, but uh, the left wing uh, has been uh, at the, I mean, has been raising and mobilizing uh, tribal subjects and citizens uh, since late colonial period. Uh, and around the time of independence also, we have several examples, as I said, in Telangana, Tebhaga, Burli, where communists were actually leading uh, agitations and mass protests uh, against um, the state structures or local uh, zamindari elements. And uh, this history has been in, is not adequately, uh, not adequately there. One of the problems with uh, the Adivasi predicament today, uh, I also feel is that, um, most of the narrativizing about tribes is around the trope of experience. 
uh, experience, whether it's a, uh, whether it takes the form of a poem or a novel or uh, some other literary format. Uh, while the narrativization of tribal experience in poetry and novels and other literary formats are necessary, I think uh, what um, is lacking in this effort is a uh, is the historicization of uh, their past struggles. So just to give you an example of um, how your one of your questions was how did the Maoist originate in the ideas in the areas where the Adivasis lived in the first place? Now um, I've heard of this in Bastar uh, by an old. Uh, uh, communist uh, party member uh, who I don't think uh, is alive today, but uh, he said that in the early 80s when uh, the, the People's War group was first entering tribal areas of Bastar, they uh, uh, I mean, CPI already had a uh, extensive presence in the region. And uh, since they came from left-wing ideologies, uh, one of the things the CPI cadre tried to do with the People's War Group uh, people uh, was conduct a dialogue that, you know, People's War Group people believe that uh, parliamentary democracy is a sham, while CPI was a mainstream parliamentary party and so on. So there were these ideological reasons, uh, fault lines on which a debate was being conducted. And um, my interviewer, uh, my, my, sorry, my interviewee uh, suggested that uh, at the level of argument, CPI was winning most of these debates. Mm, but uh, once it became clear to the People's War group faction, that they cannot win on the level of the argument, uh, they started eliminating the CPI leadership in Bastar, physically eliminating them. So uh, if the established leadership is annihilated, of course, a vacuum will be created. And when that vacuum will be created, there will be space for others to fill in that vacuum. Uh, at least in the case of Bastar, I think this has happened in the early 80s. I'm not aware of other uh, regions. The trajectory is bound to be different because India is a very large, extensive country and local conditions vary from one place to another. But uh, this, uh, uh, this, this emergence of Maoism or um, anti-parliamentary left ideology uh, in tribal spaces has multiple reasons and multiple trajectories which remain to be mapped out mainly through ethnographic research because most of these archives are closed and will remain closed for uh, the decades to come. Uh, but uh, one way in which uh, sociologists and anthropologists can uh, throw new light and important insights is by conducting fieldwork. And I think efforts are on. Some of them have bare fruit uh, and, and some uh, 
I'm sure a lot of uh, these this research is also in various stages of publication. So five to ten years from now, I think we will have a much better, larger corpus of secondary literature, which will adequately be able to answer these questions uh, and throw more light. Thank you, so thank you so much for that uh, critical insight. Um, now to our very last question. Uh, this has been addressed uh, partially, uh, especially um, you know, in terms of uh, how state uh, the nation state should uh, proactively begin to deliver its promises that were promised in the fifth schedule and uh, how historicization of tribal communities is really important to achieve these goals as well. Um, apart from that, are there any other social, legal and policy changes that can be thought of and that can be implemented to realize these goals much better? Um, it's in not my domain of, I'm a historian, I seek to understand. And narrativize my understanding based on uh, evidence which uh, lies in front of me. Uh, but I am not one of those who will say that historians should advise on policy matters. Okay. Uh, I'm I'm relatively old school in that way. Uh, <laughs> sorry, I mean okay. this is yeah, yeah, not yeah. something which. But yeah, the watchword is autonomy. I think mm -hmm. autonomy is central to tribal demands and. Um, uh, I mean, even to placate uh, the past, as, as B.D. Sharma's metaphor goes, the unbroken chain of broken promises, you have to fix that chain in, in ways which uh, is responsive to the voice of local communities. So first things first, you have to listen to these voices. And these one of the main reasons I feel uh, and again, that's that's another large project, uh, which a battery of researchers have to do, uh, is perhaps uh, the era of planning, uh, when you know technocratic uh, experts uh, sat in rooms which was full of data and figures, and they thought that they will revolutionize these uh, peripheral regions which are um, full of iron bauxite and. Uh, uranium and all kinds of other uh, wealth which was waiting to be tapped. I think in, in the uh, era of global climate change, uh, and we are, I mean, your generation will bear the full brunt of uh, uh, the Anthropocene. Uh, and, and if we don't um, mend our ways in the next nine, 10 years, then those changes will be irreversible. Uh, in that context, I will uh, recount uh, what one, one of my supervisors used to say that uh, tribal communities have lived in, uh, um, in, in kind of a symbiotic relationship with nature and its inhabitants and, and, and whatever they consider as their land for centuries and millennia. Okay. And uh, it's not that they, they have not extracted and exploited it. They have it. They have done so in various ways, uh, including agrarian expansion, cutting off forests, bringing land in, into cultivation. But um, uh, if we juxtapose that 
centuries and millennia long experience vis a vis just what 400 years of industrial capitalism what it has done to the earth uh, especially after 1945 but yeah one can't uh, a molecule of carbon dioxide will remain for 30000 35000 years and and we are talking of industrialization from 17th 18th century uh, and and we are hardly at the beginning of that period so uh, if we juxtapose the two it gives you a sense of um, what is sustainable and what is not you know uh, the kind of consumption patterns which uh, industrial societies have unleashed and have made legitimate um they are not sustainable they they cannot uh, uh industrialization of everything is not the answer for the future of our planet and very often uh, we we take on this moral voice of that we are trying to save the planet no we are not trying to save the planet we are trying to save ourselves uh, if i am able to do anything in that direction i'll be doing it for my kids not for myself i mean i have lived half my life uh, i'll live for maybe 30 40 years more but uh, uh, it's my children's life which is at stake and uh, in that sense tribes offer a more a, a model of uh, uh, engagement with nature which is uh, more durable and sustainable vis-a-vis -vis industrial capitalism and uh, i think in uh, the age of anthropocene we ought to remember that and keep it at the back of your of our heads that civilization and whatever we attribute to civilization is um, uh, or has led us to the brink of disaster and uh, if we have to reimagine our world in different ways uh, the uh, tribes are a ready reservoir how they have dealt with their environment uh, ecology is uh, a case in point and uh, should be tapped to reimagine our collective future as the human species yeah thank you sir thank you so much for that lovely response uh, especially uh, you know it's it's uh we know that uh, how environment is important uh, for us because in the future it is us and the generations after us that will be really affected by the ways we have unsustainably using up our resources and um, it was really great that you connected this with the tribal communities and how to view tribal history and these communities in this light with this um, our interview comes to an end um thank you so much professor tiwari it was an absolute pleasure uh to host you with this edition of vichar um it's been a really insightful one especially for me because uh these are some questions that uh our team has been really interested in and has been really looking forward to address these and uh it's really great that you gave us a different angle uh through which uh, we would see and we should be seeing tribal communities and their history and uh, the ways we should be sensible about uh in terms of addressing their issues thank you so much sir uh i i think uh, your team needs congratulations you gave me a set of questions which really put me hard to think i mean i, I had to devote almost an hour to make notes and you know uh, 
get the thoughts uh, in uh, in a structured format i hope i'm i have been able to answer some of your questions but many remain and many will continue to remain uh, but uh, my only uh, uh, my only advice to all of you would be uh, to continue on uh, the path of uh, research and uh, thinking and writing and conducting dialogues and discourses because uh, the kind of challenges which uh, are facing your generation the answers don't lie in religion they don't lie in politics they don't lie in any of the normal uh, tropes or discourses uh, unless you fuse everything together unless you you know make uh, a khichdi out of everything uh, the 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 answers will not emerge it requires an actual manthan and your team is uh, um, trying to do that and my uh, uh, i ensure whatever support i can give i will continue to give thank you thank you so thank much you. for that compliment and help sir please take care goodbye you too bye